wonder if he literally lost his internet or something. Internet connection. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd think he would call you. You would think. You would think he would call or text or send a pigeon. <laughs> I'm glad we have that on tape. <laughs> Let's talk. Let's talk. Jeff Howell is an absolute delight to be around. He's kind, he's humble, which serves to mask just how talented and how deep his directing chops are. Let me just read you some of the actors he's worked with. Marlon Brando, Gregory Peck, Martin Sheen, Jeff Goldblum, Owen Wilson, Sally Kellerman, Leonard Nimoy, James Earl Jones. When Gilly and I sat down with Jeff, we learned things about him that I, for one, wasn't aware he'd done. He's the type of person who's always listening, and he has an interest in whoever he's talking to, and he never talks about himself, which is why this was such a delightful and insightful conversation. Jeff Howell, let's talk voiceover. I could talk for hours about voiceover. You know, voiceovers, really, it's been my life. I sort of tripped into it, but I look back, and so many of my interest as a child and a lot of my life experiences led me to being in this business and I've haven't looked back. It's just, it's a, it's a great business. I, you know, I used to be an agent and then I went into casting and then worked at various production companies in various areas of the business. And now I'm out on my own and I just love moving throughout this interesting industry and trying to go with it because, as we all know, it's an ever-changing landscape. Mm. I'm sure you guys have felt that way too, right? Well, I mean, we've all had our own evolution. Yeah. I guess maybe mine's a little more radical because I went from musician to voice directing. Was an agent the first thing you started doing? Because I know a little bit about your history once you started producing and directing, but yeah, how'd you agent? Well, what happened was when I moved to Los Angeles... Yeah, you know, I graduated college in Boston and moved to New York briefly and had a couple of interviews in New York, but they just didn't pan out. And so I had remembered one of my instructors at BU where I went to school. She had suggested that if anyone really wanted to learn the business, they should move to Los Angeles and work for talent agents. So I packed up my car and drove out here and didn't have a job lined up right away. So I ended up through happenstance working as an extras casting director at an extras casting company. And it was during the era of Moonlighting, Cagney and Lacey, Hunter, Matlock, all that. And I worked on all those shows and did a couple of movies as well. And I was just responsible for putting all the bodies in place and casting them and putting them on stages and things like that. But it was a great job because I learned a bit about the business, mainly what I didn't want to do by just observing all the jobs on the sets. <laughs> and But it was great hanging out and just being on all those lots. And of course, that was way before... 9-11, so we were still able to walk on those lots without really having to go through too much security, if any security at all. So it was really just great. It was a wonderful experience. Met a lot of actors that I had seen on television and film over the years, and that was fun. And then the company I worked for went out of business after the first couple of years. And so I, I went back to what my instructor had said and working for a talent agency. So I went to a temp company, and they placed me at various talent agencies, a creative artist, William Morris, various other ones, smaller ones. And then they placed me at Abrams, Rubeloff and Lawrence. And at that time, Abrams, Rubeloff and Lawrence had a very big, thriving voiceover division. And so they placed me in the voiceover division right away. And, you know, at that time, that was the mid 80s. And voiceover was still sort of a very small part of the business. And it was really thought of as being mainly announcers 
and animation people. Mm -hmm. And by animation, it was mainly Hanna-Barbera, Warner Brothers, Deke, a couple of the smaller companies, and, and Disney, of course. And the animation business certainly wasn't as big as it is now. And then games didn't even exist back then. And so it was a much smaller business. And I just loved the idea that of all the agents out there, the voice agents typically had booths in their offices where they auditioned the actors and then sent out the auditions. And I thought, well, that's great because I had a theater background and acting background and thought, well, this is a great way to be able to kind of exercise, use that muscle and direct actors and try to get the best out of them and submit them to the different ad agencies, but then also be able to do marketing and have an influence on their careers and actually have the business side being exposed to the business side. So it really ended up being a match made in heaven. And I worked with some wonderful talent. Martin Landau was my client for years. Leslie Nielsen had a bunch of these character actors that you probably wouldn't know their names, but if you saw them, you'd be like, oh my God, you started Bewitched and you started in this one and that one and Carol Burnett Show and this and that. I mean, it was really amazing. And so I did that for a number of years. And then I just burned out from being an agent and realized I wanted something more creative. And again, through happenstance, and just knowing some really good people in the industry and they knew my work, I was able to get a job as the casting person at Robertus and Company, which was a very big production company that specialized in comedy radio. And Bert was from the Dick and Bert days, and that was Dick Orkin and Robertus. And then they had mm. BBC, Bert Bars and Company, and there was Dick and Bert, and then Jim Kirby worked for them, and then he opened his own Kirby Co. And it was all these comedy radio guys who had worked together in the industry, and they all split off and went on their own. And so I worked for Bert for about six years, running the casting division, and then I started directing more. And then that's when I started teaching on the side. And then I left there and went to Worldwide Wadio, and that is W-A-D-I-O. And mm -hmm. we specialized. That was when the dot-com advertising hit. And that was a wonderful, big wave to ride. And they also had a big promo division. And when commercials sort of declined in the early 2000s, we just amplified the promo area of our business. And so that's when I started working with CBS and Comedy Central and Food Network and Fox Sports and various other smaller networks, TBS, of course. And so then I was really able to get to know that business. And so I worked there for 17 years. I was VP of production. And then they decided to close around, I think it was 2016 or 2017. And then that's when I decided to go out on my own. Mm -hmm. And I'm currently in residence over at LA Studios and uh, I send clients to them. I bring my own work to them. They also hire me as their creative person in terms of contacting for talent and casting and directing. So it's a great, great situation. And that's how I got in the dubbing business was through that association. And so the last seven years have been really deeply immersed in the dubbing world and still have my hand in all other aspects of VO as well. But that's my journey. I actually have a couple of mental markers that I wanted to ask about. I know this will go back to a, a little bit farther back than we were just talking, but in your agenting days, mm -hmm. what is it that causes burnout for an agent? I'll tell you the key that caused my burnout was the frustration. As an agent, you know how good your talent is and you so much want to get them work and a lot of them need the work and you start getting emotionally involved with their situations, whether it's they need to make money for the mortgage or for their kids or their kids are getting ready to graduate and go to college. And we would just work so hard trying to get work for these actors and we could do everything but hire them. And that frustration just built and built and built up inside of me. And I just thought, I can't do this anymore because I'm doing the best I can and I have great talent and I'm getting the opportunities, but 
ultimately, it's a very competitive business and it's gotten more so over the years. And I just thought I need to go into a part of the business where I feel like I can reward actors by hiring them and working with them and just being able to get great performances from them on projects as opposed to just pounding every day trying to get work for my actors. So that was my number one reason for the burnout. Mm. That's so interesting. I, I was thinking it would be something completely different. Like people were difficult to work with. You were tired of negotiations. But instead, it was the emotional burden. Well, the thing is, I will say, I mean, you know, of course you have actors that are, they can be a little prickly, a little bit more difficult. But for the most part, I had such a great relationship with so many of my actors. And, you know, they become friends. They become family. And, you know, certainly everyone can be in a bad mood one day or something can happen that you may not be in agreement with. But the bottom line is you have this deep-rooted respect and association and respect for each other. So it wasn't that. And I love negotiating. I love mm. negotiating. It's For me, it's a little bit of a dance. I try to find out what the budget is and I try to represent my actor in the best way possible and what I think is a fair rate. And now it's a lot more complicated because there's so many other factors that can come into play, especially with online exposure. So I understand what you're saying, because certainly those could play a role in it. But in my situation, it was mainly just the frustration of working so incredibly hard and not being able to get enough work for my clients. You and I were having dinner with some people. And one of the things that really struck me that I found interesting as a musician, we've all got road stories, right? Mm -hmm. But you guys were all talking about all these people, some of whom I knew and some of who I, I didn't. But some of these stories of the people that you had in sessions, mm -hmm. it was just fascinating because a certain amount of that was because yeah. everybody was showing up to do the spots and do the sessions. Right. And you had all these people who also were known for doing improv. What happens when you get these creative people together and you take the leashes off of them? It's always so much more fun to have that sort of recounting of a story when you have someone who was actually there with you. We could say, hey, remember that time we were in the lobby at at Waves and Bob Ridgely walked in and he took his pants down and, and that sort of thing. I mean, and, and actually that did happen, by the way. Um, that was not one of the stories you told, mister. <laughs> Bob was a delight. He was notorious in our business of just having such an interesting, quirky sense of humor. And I don't know if you remember the movie Boogie Nights. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> he played the colonel and he... Uh, Oh, really? Yeah, he played the colonel. He had a thriving voiceover career because he had a beautiful voice. But he did some on camera, not a lot, but some. He had such an interesting personality. And all those, the guy club of all those older announcers that used to go from studio to studio, he was one of them. And uh, he was a shock comedian every day. And so you never knew what you were going to be walking into when you walked into the lobby and he was sitting there. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a tremendous number of stories. But I think, to your point, Randall, I think that radio was one of those areas of the business where you didn't age out of, really. Right. So there were these wonderful comedians from the 60s and the 70s that maybe they weren't booking TV series any longer, but they still wanted to be working and they were the journeymen. They didn't care. They weren't asking for overscale. They would work for scale, but they just wanted to keep working. Mm -hmm. And plus, because of their backgrounds in comedy, they were masters at being able to bring these scripts to life. And it wasn't uncommon that you would just walk by a recording studio in one of the booths and you'd hear just laughing hysterically going in inside and outside the booth all the time because these sessions were just hilarious. These actors, I mean, the outtakes, I mean, I, I, I'm sure they lived somewhere in some of these recording studios, but they were just 
so incredibly gifted and so talented and hired to do so many different characterizations and things that were required because that was the style of radio back then. Radio was more entertainment-based in terms of the advertising, and there would be these situational things. It'd be the typical traditional, like the blustery boss or the ditzy secretary, or it would be the teacher, the principal, the stern principal, and the student, the slacker, surfer dude student. Or there would be all these kind of cliche scenarios that the advertisers loved using. And so we had such a great wealth of talent that we could throw into these spots. And so I would walk in the lobby and it would be Alice Ghostly and Kathleen Freeman and mm. these wonderful older actresses that, again, you may not know their names, but you walk in and see them and go, oh, my gosh, I just saw you on an episode of Bewitched and you were hilarious. Yeah. And so it was just the golden age. I really do refer to the 80s and the early 90s and maybe even to the mid 90s as the golden age of radio advertising where we had all these incredibly gifted, known character voice talent from all these sitcoms and movies and we were using them. I mean, I, I represented Don Knotts and put him in a couple of things. It was just wonderful <laughs> working with him. He's such a great character voice and he was the sweetest man. Mm -hmm. And uh, we hired Phyllis Diller and Don Rickles and Rodney Dangerfield. I mean, it was just amazing walking into that lobby and just seeing these people and you could sit down and actually talk to them. They love talking about the old days. What a gift I think I've been given in terms of really having that experience. Mm -hmm. You and I are about the same age. How... How young did you start, mister? <laughs> well, now I'm not going to divulge that. Now, of course, I don't care. Uh, I started when I was probably like 26, 25 or 26 years old. I, I think maybe 24. Maybe I was 24 years old when I first moved to L.A. But by the time I got into the VO business, I was 26. Mm -hmm. And and so it's like I was just immediately immersed in it. And I always tell this story, too, to people that as an assistant, these are the days way before the Internet. And the only way, unless you were a real student of film and television credits, the only resource you really had to know who booked what and these character actors would be to buy those big, thick books that documented all the TV shows with all the credits and all that. And so for the most part, unless they were superstars, I really didn't know a lot of the names of these character actors and actresses. But mm -hmm. the agents I was working for at the time, they would submit their casting list to me and I would have to call these actors at home schedule them and they'd come in the next day. So I'd be talking to them on the phone. I had no idea who I was talking to. But then the first couple of months when I was there, I would walk down the lobby and hand the copy. And as I'm walking out, I'm like, holy shit, that's who you are. You know, of course, I didn't say that to them because I didn't want them to feel like I didn't know who they were. But I would be like, oh, my God, that's so and so. I can't believe it. I just saw that person or I grew up with that person on that show, but I didn't know their names. Now, of course, you can IMDb everybody and know who everyone is almost immediately. Mm -hmm. But back then, we really didn't have those resources. You know, well, and even then you'd still have to be like, who's coming in here? Should I IMDb him? You probably weren't. You're probably too busy. And you're just like, oh, I got to go deliver scripts to somebody. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Again, I I was able to get a really early start in the business. And I'm so glad I did so that I was able to work with a lot of these people because, you know, a lot of them have passed away, of course. Mm -hmm. And that's the style of radio is so different now that these character actors are gone and there's really no one to replace them. So there have been a couple of times over the last number of years where I've had casting where I've needed is some character voices, natural character voices, mm -hmm. and they just don't exist. Mm. Or if they do, we just don't know them. They're not as readily available because we don't know who they're with and all that. So it's definitely a different day. So I'm very thankful that I started in the business when I did. I would like to talk about dubbing. How did you get into that? Why is it the big deal that it is? Well, there are two questions there. I'll start with why dubbing has become the big thing. And that is mainly because 
with all the streaming services out there, they're all hungry for content. And it's much cheaper to take a known product that was produced in another language and to localize it into this language. The Netflixes, the Disneys, the HBO Maxes of the world, and Amazon, they're all trying to fill their streaming services full of content to entice customers to tune in and watch. And so they're out there acquiring all of this material. And so they've decided to invest in dubbing because maybe that will entice people as opposed to people reading subtitles mm -hmm. to tune in and watch. But then the other side is how did I get into this? Like I mentioned briefly before, when I started my association or my affiliation with LA Studios, they are owned by a corporation called Photochem. And Photochem has many tentacles in various parts of our business in the audio portion, the digital portion, the visual portion and processing, all of that. And so Netflix is one of their biggest clients. One of the salespeople was aware of my talent and my reputation. And so she called me in for a meeting one day over Photochem and she asked me, she said, dubbing is becoming a big thing. And now this is seven years ago when it was just really starting to happen. Mm -hmm. And she said, we tried doing a test about a year ago and we just didn't have the right person here at LA Studios or Margarita Mix that was able to have the background that you have to really steer this forward. And we feel that now with you being affiliated, we would love to try to get a piece of that business. Would you be interested? And I said, absolutely. Because, you know, at that time, I really only had a couple of clients. First of all, I'd never say no to a job. And I didn't have dubbing experience. I had directed some ADR, but I thought, why the heck not? And so we had a meeting with Netflix and we were able to work out a deal. And I just dove into it. And I look back on the first project that I did and I would have done it so differently now. It wasn't bad. And I think what really made it a success, I just hired some really amazing actors and we had a great time doing it. Mm -hmm. And that was my start. And that was seven years ago. And then what happened was one of the producers in Netflix liked my work and started recommending me to various other dubbing facilities. And so these dubbing facilities needed directors at that time. And so they liked my work. And, you know, it's one of those word of mouth situations. Mm -hmm. And I've been consistently busy ever since. I mean, I'll have a, a month off here or a month off there. And then, of course, COVID sort of changed <laughs> the way we did our business for a while. But I've been very, very fortunate. I've worked on some very interesting projects. I can't say that every single one of them is a favorite project of mine. <laughs> but it's allowed me to kind of grow in that genre as well and to really learn a new skill in voiceover directing and producing. And it's very complicated, the process, and it's very tedious. It's probably some of the hardest directing I've ever had to do. But at the very end of the day, after a project is over, I'm very proud that I'm in this business in this particular area. And I do go back and listen and watch some of my own work. And I think, good job. Mm -hmm. It's a tough business, the dubbing business, in terms of really making a, a high quality product. Yeah. So tell me more about what makes it complicated. Well, twofold. It's the adaptation issue and the sync issue without getting too complicated. Obviously, as directors, we try to have the performance match the lip flap as best as we possibly can, but also keeping the context in mind. We can't completely change the meaning of a line or an emotional intention of a line just because it looks better. And depending on the language, some languages are easier to adapt than others. But 
again, it's that trying to create a fluid sort of watching viewing experience for the consumer, because if it's too jolting, then you either will lose your audience right away, or they'll just plod through it, but they won't get as good of an experience out of it because it will be too disjointed and too disruptive when you're hearing a word and it's not what's coming out of that mouth. You know what mm. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I'm saying is it doesn't look like the flap is matching. Mm-hmm. And then the other in regards to adaptation, that's the a person that is hired on the dubbing side. The actual production company hires these people to actually take the translation and they load it into various dubbing software, the packages that are out there. And the one that I've worked with quite a bit is called VoiceQ. Mm-hmm. And they load in the uh, script into voice cue and then they sit there and literally watch frame by frame and try to rearrange the words and work on the timing so that by the time the director and the actor and the engineer gets to it that it's relatively close if not exactly lined up and so all we have to do in the studio theoretically as a director i just have to work on the emotional aspect of it and spatial aspect of getting the performance and then the actor just has to read the scroll across the screen and perform. And the engineer just needs to tighten it up. Mm-hmm. But finding good adapters seems to be very tough out there to do. And I have such respect for these adapters. I think it's an incredibly tough job. And usually, from what I've heard, they aren't usually given enough time to do these projects or they have them stacked up. And, of course, they need to have a life, too. But you can mm-hmm. sometimes it takes three hours to do one scene mm. oh, yeah, or more. It's a very tedious job. So I have a lot of respect for adapters, mm-hmm. but those are the two aspects of dubbing that make it incredibly difficult. Well, you know, it's interesting. I had a student in a workshop that I was doing last night and his first language is Spanish, super fluent in English, which of course makes him really good for things like dubbing. Great. But he was talking about that exact thing from his perspective. It's like, God, you know, some of these times you just get these translations that they're just not good. And we're spending a lot of our time in the booth, essentially rewriting scripts. And correct me if this is not right. Yeah. The movie itself, they had however long, you know, two years, whatever the time frame was to work on it. And then here's this content. And now you've got this hunger for content. It's like, hey, 18 languages, whatever the number is, uh-huh. you got six weeks. Go. Yeah. Fair. Correct. Yes. Correct. <laughs> it's incredibly tight, the timelines. And, you know, they'll call me and they'll ask me my availability and then they'll describe the project. And when they give me the range of the dates in terms of what they've allowed, I just sit there and I just chuckle to myself and go, okay, I'm going to add about two more weeks to that because I know <laughs> what's going to happen. Right. And I'm usually 100% right in terms of my scheduling because I don't want to book myself too tightly from one to the other. I like to have a little bit of a pad so that I can rest of my ears and my brain for a week or so and also catch up on my other work because I'll tell you, and I think Randall, you and I talked about this, that when you're in the dubbing world from a directorial standpoint, usually I start right at the stroke of 9 Mm a.m. and we get a break for lunch and then we go until 6 or 6.30 and maybe we get a couple of little breaks, micro breaks during the day. But then, you know, with traffic getting to and from, it's a big portion of the day. And I'm so used to as a freelancer being able to juggle projects and I can sit at my dining room table with all my files and I go for, okay, I'm going to work on this advertising project for the next hour and then I'll jump to, if I'm doing a demo for someone, I'll work on that for a while or writing scripts for that. Or if I'm doing a promo project and so I'm able to sort of juggle and take calls and return emails all through the day. Well, when you're on a dubbing project, good luck. Your life becomes so focused. I call it going down the rabbit dubbing hole. You just get so drawn (laughs) in 
you have to have that focus. You can't possibly divide your focus. And I have been able to do it, but it's really, really tough. Yeah, both Gillian and I have video game projects where that's exactly what it is. It's essentially nine to six every day. Yeah. And you're going to spend X number of weeks doing this. And you're right. You can't really focus on anything else. No, no. You have 15 minutes. I might eat lunch or a nap. I know. <laughs> I know. You need, you see that time. I'm sure. Yes. Rando, tell me, like, what's the hardest project you've ever worked on where you feel like that you just couldn't do anything else other than that project? Like you had literally zero time. I don't know. Um, I mean, they all kind of blur together to some degree. I don't know that I would say this or not, but Gillian, I mean, Cosmonious High was pretty consuming. Mm -hmm. I find they all are. I mean, Cobra Kai was consuming. We couldn't do anything. But to me, that's actually why I like being in the business. It's very similar to working on a film. I love total immersion in something, and then it's done. I'm out. That's yeah. really the cycle that I thrive the best in. It is hard. You can't do anything else. But yeah, I don't know. There's something just about being inside of it and working with all of the minute details I find exciting. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I love that idea of being on a project. And even though it's for a limited time, it's like this burst of all-consuming. And mm. I, I love that because then by the time it's over, you're you're relieved, but it's a, a job well done. And, and it was just such a part of your life. The only problem is as a freelancer, at least for myself, I'm juggling usually several different things at all times yeah. because that's what freelancers do. Yeah. And so sometimes I feel that I wish that I could ask the dubbing facilities if we could have like a, a longer break in the middle of the day to just be able to have like a director's suite where you could go in, set up your laptop and return calls for an hour and a half or two hours. And I actually do that for lunch. Usually I don't even take lunch. I'll just grab a coffee or a piece of fruit or something and go in and immediately dive in and return emails and, and make calls and things like that just to make sure I'm keeping up with my other clients. But absolutely, it is what it is. And I'm just so thankful to be in the business, the dubbing business. And if it is that way, that's fine. It's just that's why I like to have breaks in between projects so that I can sort of catch up on my life. And, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Go to the doctor's appointments that I had to rearrange three times because right. the deadlines moved around so much. Absolutely. And, or, you know, just getting things done around my, my house or right. just my personal life just to have that yeah. time because weekends just seem to fly by. And then there's, as we all know, there's certain life things that can't happen on a weekend that you can only take care of during the week. So, right. But that being said, what is a first world problem is it's great to be that busy and to work on such oh, yeah. interesting and engaging projects. So I have a question from an actor standpoint for actors who would want to get into the circles of dubbing. What do you do? Well, the good news is this, that most of the dubbing houses that I've worked with have internal casting departments. And so you can either go online and if they don't have a procedure listed, you could probably even just call the individual dubbing houses and just say, hi, I'm a talent. I'd like to talk to the casting person in charge. And they'll either give you the email address of that person or they'll give you their direct line and you can reach them. And if you do reach out to them, make sure you have some sort of demo that you are prepared to send them because that's what they're going to ask for. Sure. And I mean, you don't have to have a dubbing demo. Just try to have a demo that presents your voice in such a way that is more natural, especially highlight if you are bilingual. That makes you especially uh, oh, yeah. of interest to and on the radar of these dubbing facilities. But I would say that's probably the best way to get into it. And then if you are with a talent agency and have an agent, then I would say, tell them of your interest. And then it really is on them to reach out to these dubbing facilities and say, hey, why don't you use our talent? 
So mm-hmm. Gillian here, she's great and she you know, speaks for three languages and she's a great actress and can, can we get her in? And it's still kind of the wild, wild west with casting with the uh, dubbing houses I even see on Facebook. Of course, I have a huge membership on Facebook of talent and, and other co-directors and things and casting people. So I see their postings occasionally. In fact, yesterday I saw one from casting director roundabout who was looking for a specific thing and just posted on Facebook. And so you're seeing a lot of that. They're not going through the traditional casting services. Mm -hmm. They're posting it on social media. And then I know when I meet specialties, I've actually had to approach like local theater groups. If I'm trying to get Japanese, I'll sometimes look for a Japanese acting group or something like that or Korean Mm -hmm. acting group. And so we've had to be somewhat creative with our casting. But the key is, and I will say this, I absolutely love the voiceover community and they're my people. And I will always defer to voiceover folks in terms of whatever work I'm working on. But in the dubbing world, you don't necessarily have to have voiceover experience. It's acting experience. So we have reached Mm -hmm. out to the theater groups that maybe these actors have never been exposed to voiceover. And maybe on some levels, it's even better that they haven't had the direct voiceover experience because they're more used to just being in the moment and just looking at a screen and reading across the screen and then they can just act it and they're not worried about where the microphone is and hitting certain words or selling an idea or being overly charactery if they may have been trained in games or animation. So mm-hmm. it really is a style of acting that's a, I'm not going to say subtle because a lot of the performances I've had to direct are not subtle performances, but it's a pure emotion and it's not advertising, it's not promo, it's not animation, it's not games, it's dubbing. And it's yeah. a pure form of acting. Mm. Do you find that there is a genre of people, the easy thing for me is to say video game actors, uh-huh. but maybe it's not. Do you find that there's a specific genre that as a general rule seem to be more suited to dubbing than others? Well, it's been my experience. The answer to that mostly is no, but with an asterisk, because I do know that some of the people I have ended up hiring have come from the gaming world. Mm-hmm. I have never directed a game myself. I have directed animation, but I've never directed games. But from what I hear, other than exertions being a little bit more key in terms of gaming as opposed to dubbing, in dubbing, we do exertions as well. Mm-hmm. But I'd say at least my impression of the gaming world is that in a lot of these games, because they're so reality-based and they are almost like feature films in themselves, that they're going for more natural performances too. And of course, I would defer to you guys because you've had a lot more experience in that Mm -hmm. than I have. But I could say, if I had to say that there is a genre of voiceover that tends to translate for dubbing, I'd say gaming. You're still also doing a lot of things in isolation, right? You're not doing a lot of ensemble performances, or is that not correct? Uh, Well, I will say this. That's an interesting question because when I first got into this, the head of dubbing for Netflix was interested in trying to do ensemble recording. And this was way before COVID. And so Mm -hmm. my first two or three projects, I was the scheduler because I was producing and directing and scheduling. And so I would have to break down and it took a lot longer to do this. But the way I did scheduling, it was almost like feature film scheduling. Right. A day out of days, you know, I would try to see who was grouped together in certain scenes, which groups I felt needed to read together, because especially if there was some sort of emotional intention of the scene, whether it was a love scene or a fight or argument or what have you, if I felt that the performances would vastly improve by having them in together, I would schedule them together. Mm -hmm. We found that that extended the amount of time it took to get these performances from the actors because Mm -hmm. we would be adapting on the fly, which is very typical. And so now you're adapting two different roles as opposed to one. And in addition to that, we had to ensure that we weren't getting bleed 
in the microphones because if you put them in ISO booths, it defeats the whole purpose. If you have a group recording, you want them to be in the same room so they can listen to each other, feed off each other's energy. You can't do that in ISO booths, even if the ISO booths are right beside each other, even if they're facing each other. It's a lot harder mm -hmm. to do that. I, I do think that we were able to get such great performances from the actors on the relationship scenes because they were literally standing right beside each other and they were looking at each other. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, it was, it was wonderful. But because of that, we had to actually have one sit down and we had to make sure we had a safety. So we'd have the actor go through and try to copy that performance, mm -hmm. but individually, and then we have the other actor do it. So it basically sometimes doubled the amount of time that it took to record mm. for safety. But now then cut to COVID, and just the way scheduling has been happening with all these facilities, we don't have the time to do it that way any longer. So it's really up to the director and the actor to make those performances seem real, that they're in scenes together. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, I just heard a rumor recently that Netflix is starting to try to mandate that a bit more of trying to do group recordings again. So mm -hmm. I have not received that mandate yet. I, of course, if if I had my preference, I would love to do that with certain scenes. Yep. I think certain scenes, it's unnecessary, but I think for any sort of relationship, whether it's two guys having a fight or having a buddy-buddy thing going on, or if you have a couple that's having some sort of spout, or if they're having a love scene, I do think that it really, really, really does add to that performance. But I'll say that there have been many times I've directed the actors and they didn't have that, and I think they sound great. We just have to work a lot harder. Yeah. I think I told you this, but I've been watching Bad Exorcist because it's so easy because <laughs> there's just these short little hits. Mm -hmm. My God, just yeah. kudos to the actors, but kudos to you too. Some of that is just, it's so much like South Park, and I'm not just saying it because of the style of animation. Like, not. I should not be laughing at this. <laughs> That's really funny. That project was one of my hardest, most difficult projects to work on. And number one, it was and I'm not even exaggerating, it was 50% underwritten. And so we're oh, not God. quite sure how that happened, if it was a miscommunication between the adapter and the production company or the translation company, whatever. Bottom line is, when we started working on it and we had the actor the first day in the booth and he was reading from the scroll and all of a sudden we're looking at these South Park style flaps just flapping away and the no words, words and no words or the words it was a lot slower <laughs> or what it was a lot slower. So what happened was all of a sudden we had to start beefing up the lines and it was happening with every single character. And we thought there's something must have happened here. It just didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Now it's neither here nor there. Uh, we're done with it and it was a great experience. But I was saying to someone yesterday, we were talking about that experience because he worked at VSI at the time as well. And we commiserated quite a bit about that experience. And I said, you know, in truth, I think the director, myself, and the engineer and the actors should have gotten a writing credit on it because we really did add quite a bit. <laughs> and with the adapters, there were various adapters that worked on it. And there were some cultural references that just didn't work. And so we had to completely rewrite a few of the scenes to make them work, mm -hmm. keeping the context correct. But, you know, if they're referring to some sort of nursery rhyme that was in Polish, mm -hmm. but no one in this country would understand what that meant. So we had to change it up to rework the joke to make it work. So because of the lack of lines, did you just get actors who are like improv on this? Here's the basic gist, go. 
Yes, exactly. And some of them, they would sit there and they would read it and they would watch it back and they'd say, okay, I can add a word here. I can add a word there. And I certainly don't have an ego that I'm like, go for it because I had my work cut out for me, just making sure everything was lining up properly and that the characterizations were consistent and the humor was translating. And so, but yes, there were a couple that I would ask for if they had anything they wanted to ad lib, I would allow them to do so. But Ad-libbing sometimes can take time, and there's certain actors that are better at it than others, oh, yeah. and by no fault of their own. Just some are really amazing in improvisation, and some of them, they would rather read from a script, so we would sit there and re readapt on the fly. And so that made me have to be more of the improv sort of comedy writer. And then we learned throughout the process that things were underwritten, so we try to anticipate it. So I would spend time outside of the studio re-watching and adding lines so that by the time the actors came in, we had more of a framework for them to work off of that was lining up better. What are some of the other things you've gotten a chance to do of late that are out? There's a series uh, on HBO Max called Lust. And okay. it was, I believe, six episodes, a Swedish series. Hmm. And the four lead actresses are all big stars in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And the gist of it was that it was almost like a sex in the city sort of vibe, except it was more tailored towards middle-aged women who were going through either had been divorced or they're in the middle of a divorce or... You know, they're not getting laid by their husband. And so they are maybe thinking about going outside their relationships. Mm -hmm. But it was hilarious how they wrote it and the characterizations that appeared in it. And so I was trying to match those. And it was just such a, a great, great project for me. And it's one of the ones where I, as soon as it dropped on HBO Max, I watched it and I was laughing out loud. And usually, I've seen it so many times because I've worked on it for months and months that sometimes I'll snicker, but because I'll, I'll let, yeah, that was funny and it worked. But yeah, this one made me laugh out loud. And, and I think that, again, so blessed with such an incredibly talented cast. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them I'd worked with before, but of course I had some new people on it as well, pleasantly surprised. Mm -hmm. So that was a real pleasure. I also just finished the season two of a production called Snob a Cash. And it's been very popular on Netflix. I'm very proud of it. And it's about the drug gang industry in Sweden. And of course, there are some personal human relationships that happen that you really care about these people. And you know, this one gets murdered and this one has a baby and this and that. And, and this was trying to get her career off the ground. And so you're kind of rooting for her and all this. So, but it, it was, I think, a very somewhat violent but touching series. So that's a good one. And uh, just so many. I worked on a really very sweet one last year. I started in November. It was a Christmas movie, so we had to get through it really quickly. And it's called David and the Elves, and it's on Netflix. And it was a very cute movie. And it was a real challenge because, of course, the lead kid had a lot to do. And I found a wonderful kid actor to do it. And uh, there was some singing involved, but it was a very, very charming movie. Mm -hmm. And so I was very, very proud of that as well. But, you know, it's hard to find like a leader of being a favorite. My first one at VSI was, who would you take to a deserted island? And there were four lead actors in it. That was my favorite because I just felt the casting was so right off. The four characters were just amazing. It was a Spanish movie. So it was a movie because that sounds like a reality show, but it was an actual movie. Exactly. It was a movie. Yeah. And it was just such a magnificent cast and they all did such a great job. And then, of course, I did the Naked Director 1 and 2, and that was such a very unique project. And that's a Netflix project. It was about the porn industry in Japan in the early 1980s. And so it was a real challenge because of the theme, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. There were lots of sex scenes, but... My way around that was I hired females that were friends of mine 
who wouldn't be embarrassed by it. And we just had a great time, you know, just tried to enjoy mm -hmm. the acting process. But it was a very interesting project to work on, just the nature of it. Mm, that sounds interesting. Yeah. I have a question for you. You have done so many different aspects of the voiceover world. I'm curious, do you have your sights on anything different than what you're doing now? Wow, that's the million-dollar question. <laughs> you know, I would love to maybe experience gaming because I've never done it before, and I just love the idea of trying to try everything because I've done audiobooks before or audio novels. I can honestly say I've done a traditional audiobook but I did these sci-fi audio novels with Leonard Nimoy and John Delancey many years ago for Simon & Schuster. So I did that genre a bit. And then I've directed a number of animation projects as well. But the gaming industry, I've never had a chance to work in. So I'd love to maybe have the opportunity to do that someday. But, you know, there's always something new on the horizon. I mean, you know, years ago, I directed Siri for Apple. So I was six months in a mystery studio down in Culver City in their hidden campus down there in this amazing high-tech studio, just sitting there directing this female talent doing phonemes for about four to six months. And so that was an interesting experience. And I've done quite a bit of IVR over the years. I really don't have an interest in doing that work, but yeah. Even IVR actors don't have an interest in it anymore. <laughs> I know, exactly. I know, isn't that the truth? Mm. So can tech please take that away from us? I know. And I think it will. I'm sure it will at some point. It's knocking at the door. I think it kind of has. Yeah. I haven't done trailers as much. I've done one or two, but you know that industry has sort of declined so much over the years. But I'm hoping that maybe with the streaming services, with the encroachment of more advertising and promos and trailer work, I'm hoping I can sort of ride that wave for a while because I have that promo background and to maybe have that as a part of my business is to get more involved in the promo aspect of these streaming services when they actually start running promos on the actual networks and maybe these mini trailers, and maybe they'll even call them something else. Mm. Mm -hmm. But I do think that we're living in a day and age where to have a platform that doesn't survive on advertising, I think ultimately is probably unrealistic mm -hmm. at some point because there's so many people that try to get things for free. So you're going to find that if you signed up for HBO Max, there are 10 people that didn't and they're just using someone else's. And so these streaming services are not making as much money as they potentially could be. And so they're going to have to support it in other ways. And I think advertising, promos, trailers are going to be possibly where they're going to be doing that. That would make a lot of sense. You're doing a lot of teaching. Just given the schedule that you talked about, where do you find the time to do that? I mean, you've got a big project. And like you said, you're doing the nine to six thing. You don't just drive home and teach, do you? Oh, Randall, Randall, Randall. <laughs> if only I could be cloned, you know. You know, that is the million-dollar question, and here's the answer to that. When I am in immersed in dubbing, it's virtually impossible for me to be a private coach on a Monday through Friday schedule. Yeah. However, I open up my weekends even though I need my downtime too. But my business model has never been one to aggressively go after coaching. It comes to me and I love doing it. And I think I've really been able to have a hand in many careers, which I'm thrilled about and proud of. And I know people are, sometimes they get frustrated because they can't get to me, but I focus more on production. And I think that makes me better at being a coach when I'm available because I'm actually out there producing content in whatever area that I'm in at that moment in time. Mm -hmm. But it also makes it hard for actors to get to me. So I always, if they ask me and I can't do it, I have other people I'll refer them to with a big apology and asterisk saying, mm. when I am available, absolutely, I would love to work with you. 
but I do have some regular clients and they are used to my crazy schedule. And so they either wait for me or we'll do a weekend. But if let's say, for example, there's a big promo campaign that's out floating around and all of a sudden I get my inbox gets full of requests to direct them in the audition, I'll try to make time for that early mornings or right after work. I just can't fill my evenings up with these hours of coaching because my ears are so tired. And I feel like it's not fair to the actors either because I'm not at my best, you know. To answer your question, I delicately try to balance it. Yeah. Right now, I did a private this morning and I did a couple yesterday and I did a full number last week because people are aware that I'm not busy right now and word tends to travel fast. And then I let people know as well. So the answer to that is I do the best I can and hopefully people have patience. And if not, I certainly understand if they go elsewhere because there are some wonderful coaches out there that I'm very happy to refer people to. Yeah, absolutely. All right. All right, Randall. What, Gillian? All right. Sure. Let's do it. <laughs> well, my pleasure, Gillian and Randall. It's just great to be able to do this. And sorry for some of the tech issues, but you know, the thing is I, I do enjoy talking about voiceover. As you can tell, I can talk about it for hours and hours and hours and hours because it's been such an important part of my life. So I'm very thankful to be in it. And thank you for having me on your podcast. Thanks for being there. Great. And then till next time. And there you have it. You know, if you're in the industry at all and you have a chance to be in Jeff's presence, take it. You'll almost definitely come away smiling and feeling like you've been graced. You can't say that about everyone in the biz now, can you? Let's Talk VoiceOver is hosted by Gillian Brashear, actor, director, visionary, and me, Randall Ryan, owner of Hamsterball Studios, delivering the world's best talent virtually anywhere. And we can both also be found at thevoicedirector.world. If you have any comments, questions, or you just want to let us know what you think, reach out at info at letstalkvoiceover.com. Find us at all your favorite places to get podcasts. Somehow, LTBO populates everywhere. What a world! Thanks for listening, and let's talk voiceover again real soon. <laughs> <laughs>